no food or drink allowed in the sanctuary. There's two ways to get around this. You can sneak it in, or you can start teaching the Bible. But for the sake of this example we're going to use today, I need two people. This one's mine. So I stopped by Dutch Bros. I need two people, one person who likes mochas, and the other who likes lattes, and specifically needs this coffee right now. <laughs> come and get it. Come, no, sit, come on. Aurora! I, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. And remember, King David ate the showbread. Aurora, which do you go first? Mocha. Is that cool? All right. Do you have to do anything else? No, no, no. no. I'm just going to use you as an example later. Okay. Thank you. Don't spill that. Don't, don't get me in trouble. And, yeah, I know, right? Oh. Now, there's the time-honored tradition that I've taken part in myself, and most of you married people are aware of. Sometimes, when you're married, it's this thing you do on your way to church every single Sunday, and then you stop. Eventually, in some part of your marriage, it just goes away. But for a while there, you fight on your way to church every single Sunday. It is a time-honored Christian tradition. And then you walk through the door, and your wife greets somebody and says, like, praise the Lord. And you stand there like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know what you just told me? I praise the Lord? But he's worthy of our praise whether you're obedient or not. Whether you're in sin or not in sin and whether you fought all the way here, I'm happy that you're here this morning. Amen. God is still worthy of our, our praise. And so, for those who believe, I want to invite you to take a second before we start teaching. We're going to pause for maybe a minute. Go before the Lord and confess your sins because He is faithful and just to forgive them. And then ask specifically that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and speak to you. Let's take a moment and do that right now. Lord, we come before you in all humbly, confident that you want to speak today, asking that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show us your will. You're the creator of heaven and earth. There is no other God besides you, and so we ask that you meet with us here, that you increase our faith. We thank you, Lord, that grace abounds. We thank you for the grace that saved us. We thank you for the grace that sustains us. And so, Lord, we ask, speak. Speak to our hearts, and may we apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 11. 
The title of this sermon is The Yoke is on You. And if you didn't come forward and get the coffee, the yoke is on you. And if you don't get it, it's because you don't speak Spanglish. <laughs> chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for this name, I speak to you as my children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan or what part has a believer with an unbeliever verse 16 and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God as God has said I will dwell in them and I will and I will walk among them I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. How beautiful is that? Verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. In verse 11, Mark's kind of a, a huge, not a huge, but a, a pretty good shift. It'd actually be a good spot for a chapter mark. Up until this point, Paul hasn't really been backpedaling so much as he's been explaining, hey, this is why I didn't come and visit you. Because there is tension between the Corinthian church and Paul, Paul was the founding pastor, the spiritual father. But when he journeyed to Ephesus, problems arose in Corinthians. And people started gossiping about Paul, questioning his ministry, questioning his calling, questioning his love. And so he spent the first six chapters of this letter, more or less, explaining to them, I didn't come because I didn't want to be hard on you. I love you. I'm proud of you. I boast in you. You're my letter of recommendation. And in the previous verses, he explained, this is the ministry that I've been in in front of you. This is what I was delivered by. And though I may be perceived as a de deceiver, what I'm telling you is true. And so he gets here in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Essentially saying enough is enough, guys. There's no more playing the victim. It needs to stop now. If there's tension, if there's an issue between us, that's on you now. There's no more, well, Paul said this, and it was, it was really hard, and it hurt my feelings. As Christians, sometimes we become experts in counterpunching and making excuses. We become Houdinis of the Christian world. Instead of applying a verse, instead of taking the rebuke, we learn to dodge it. 
And when you get real experience in church, you learn to say holy things while it's doing it. Such as one of the classics go-to for me, I don't feel called to that. That's a good one. When you want to get out of something, use that one. Who can argue? I'm not called to do that. Another classic one, I'm waiting for the still small voice. Can argue with you. And as you mature in your church, you'll stir, you'll, you can attach Bible verses to the things we do. Somebody comes to you and says, Hey man, I don't, I don't think you should be dating that girl or you shouldn't be dating that guy. If you can attach a Bible verse to it, it's game over, right? Jeremiah 29.11 is the one most often used. In Bible college, it is attached to more failures in ministry and failures in relationships than any other verse in the Bible. No, no, God gave me this verse. I have this verse. Even though what I'm doing is completely morally and, 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 and against Scripture and it's unacceptable, I got this verse, though. Or this one, you've got to use it, use it wisely. Don't just throw this around. But the best one is say somebody says, man, I think you're drinking too much. You shouldn't be drinking that much alcohol, dude. You need to chill out. Or don't hang out with those guys. They're a bad influence on you. Jesus was a friend of sinners. You're a legalist. Mic drop. Nobody can argue with that. If you're in the Calvary Chapel movement and you get called a legalist, it's game over. And these are the ways we can escape what God has clearly told us to do or not to do. When he's prompted us, we can use the Bible to counterpunch. Say, oh, no, no. I'm not called to do that. I'm waiting for a voice to tell me that Jeremiah 29:11, and you're a legalist. And instead of embracing it, the Corinthians made excuses after, well, Paul's this and Paul's that. Then he's saying, it's enough of this. Enough, guys. The truth is, the truth is, verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Verse 13, now in return for the same, I speak to you as my children, you also be open. Yeah, you have a lot of love, but it's misplaced. It's love for the world and the things in it. God is not your priority. You're making excuses. Stop playing the victim is what Paul's saying. This stops here. And he encourages them, we've been open with you. We've been vulnerable for you. And you see the secondary application there? Anytime you step out and you speak into somebody's life, you can get hit back. It's a byproduct. That happens. Read the few verses that came before this and how Paul was perceived, and how he was treated. That's ministry. That's the school we go to. And so Paul encourages them in verse 13, be open with us. Let's keep it real here. Let's just be honest. Don't make a Christian excuse. Don't make a churchy excuse. Just be honest. You have a lot of love, but it's not for the Lord anymore. 
You've become attached to the things of the world. Paul wrote to Timothy and told him, no one engaged in warfare ensnares himself in the affairs of this world. But you didn't want to fight anymore. And so you started bringing stuff into your life. Hiding it with Scripture. Plain pretend. As if God doesn't see this. And so Paul says this needs to stop. It's not me, Paul tells them. I'm not the problem. Your own affections are the problem. Your love, your misplaced love, that's the issue. And so he goes into verse 14 and he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The idea there is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10-ish, I think. They were given the law in the Old Testament. And it covered a lot of things. It covered many portions of their life. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, God tells them, don't make clothes out of linen and wool. It's either a linen shirt or a wool shirt. Right? He fashioned faux pas. That's the original one of the Old Testament. Don't do that, guys. But one of them was, don't yoke an ox with a donkey. The idea of a yoke, it was a wooden beam placed around an animal, mostly an oxen, mostly ox, placed around their neck. But it was carved, it was made specifically for each animal. It wasn't one size fits all. It was made with the specific intention of one animal. Now, if you had a donkey and an ox and they were under the same yoke, one would damage the other. They wouldn't pull the same weight. They were at different heights. One was inherently stronger and apparently donkeys have stinky breath. A yoke improperly installed on an animal would cause damage. It would cause chafing, leading to sores, perhaps infections, shoulder dislocation. You have two animals yoked together that aren't equal, that aren't the same species, you're going to cause damage to both of them. Jesus says, in fact, let's flip over there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You guys there? Sound like you're there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus is speaking, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy 
my yoke is easy in verse 30 literally means fits well. He's speaking regarding the law or the old covenant. The old covenant, guys, you guys were crushed under that. That yoke didn't fit you well. You couldn't live up to the standard set before the Lord, the Lord set before man. That didn't fit you well. And his people, they were exhausted. The Pharisees had added more to the law. They couldn't do it. They were tired. And he sees this. Come to me, Jesus says. My yoke fits well. It fits perfectly. It's made just for you. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to cause chafing or dislocation, and you won't be crushed under it. I made this just for you. It fits well. My yoke is easy. In Mark chapter 6, I think it's in verse 3, Jesus goes home. And he begins teaching in the synagogue. And they say, isn't this? Isn't this just a carpenter? That word carpenter they use, we translate it, we get our word technology, it's tecton, or technia. So it doesn't speak to more of doing like rough framing, like putting a wall up, it's finished carpentry. They would use it to describe artisans and finished carpenters. And so some scholars speculate that Joseph and Jesus made yokes. They were professional comedians. They made yokes. There you go. Now, I don't know if that's true. They weren't comedians. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And what's the other option? The other yoke that they were under was to read God's law, read the first five books, read the Torah, fulfill it completely, leaving no stone unturned, completely obey God in every single way your entire life, and then it's still not enough because you're stillborn. You just can't do it. Paul says, I was blameless before the law but it wasn't good enough. It just won't work. From the first sin, man has been trying to work his way back to God. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves. They went to work. But the price for their sin was blood. And so God had to kill an animal to clothe them. That was the cost of the first sin. You cannot work your way back. They could not sow enough fig leaves to cover their shame. They could not hide quoting Bible verses, staying there waiting on the Lord. They were fully exposed before the Lord. No amount of work would get them there. And so Jesus says, My yoke, the covenant that I offer, my work, it fits you perfectly. Why does it fit us perfectly? Because we're yoked to Jesus. Essentially, he did all the work. We're on for the ride. His yoke 
fits well. It fits perfectly well. He wasn't just an ordinary carpenter. He was a master craftsman. And he has made this specifically for you individually. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. Now, whenever we read this verse in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together, people most commonly use that to say, well, a Christian man or woman should not date an unbeliever. And that's true. But it means more than that. The problem is, is we get into kind of some gray areas there. To expound on this, well, you run the risk of people saying, hey man, that's legalism. You can't say that to me. Well, we know, hey, you shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, and it's readily accepted that, hey, that means you can't date or marry a non-Christian. But if we go further, I think it can also apply to who are your friends. Well, Jesus was a friend of sinner, but look at his ministry. He was radical. They were being converted. If that's going on in your friendships, cool. But who's influencing who? Are you becoming more like them? More accepting of the things of the world? Where are your affections? Maybe you have a business partner. Well, this guy's really smart and he's really good with money and he sure does not walk with the Lord, but... I need his help. As if God is slack. And now you've joined together, but here's the problem. You're two different creatures now. One's a donkey and one's an ox. It won't work. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Verse 15, And what accord has Christ with Satan, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are completely different. You are not the same. Oh, but my, if I can convince my boyfriend who's not a Christian or my girlfriend who's not a Christian, if I can convince them to go to church, that'll look cool. Well, he's going to church. Or the best excuse, the real good one, is to say they're spiritual. They believe in God. They just don't do organized religion. Because we find great examples of that all through Scripture. This man has rejected organized religion. He refuses to be with the body of Christ and it works out well. It's an excuse. The Bible, though, does say we're capable of doing good when we're not Christians. It says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven. So I'm not saying you can't have a good life or a good friendship or a good marriage, or a good business partner, but you can't have a godly one. If they're not Christians, well, their ways aren't your ways anymore. You're a whole different creature. You're a new creation. You're the temple of God. 
There's nothing you have in common. What does light have to do with darkness? Our believer with unbeliever. Yeah, Jesus was a friend of sinner. Absolutely. But look at his ministry to them. He didn't go and just kick it with the prostitutes all the time. That would be weird. <laughs> it's not a yoke. That was, it's funny. The idea is, what are you yoked to? Where are your affections? When Jesus looked at Israel and he was looking over and he said, man, I, so many times I just wanted to gather you to myself. That's what he wants. He just wants to gather us to himself. He has a yoke perfectly made for you. And yet sometimes we choose, we choose to hide It may be completely against the rules. There's signs, signs everywhere, signs. You can't have coffee in the sanctuary. But that was nice. I did a nice thing for Aurora, right? Don't spill that. Don't you do that. Sure, it was against the rules, but it's a good thing. You can have a good marriage but you can't have a godly one. The best they can do for you is get you a cup of coffee. They can do something nice for you. Can they help you spiritually? We war against principalities and powers. Will their prayers be effective? They have no communion with the Lord. The direction you want to take your business, will your non-Christian business partner want to go the same way? They just want the profit. Will your non-Christian spouse be able to protect you spiritually, to care for you spiritually, to pull alongside you in the same direction? No. You have two different mindsets. You are two different creations. You're, yes, you're the human race, but you've been made completely different. The best thing they could do for you is maybe something good. It may be against the rules and maybe it feels good right now, but that's all you're going to get out of it. And I know it's easy for me to say my wife's a Christian and sometimes I know a man I served with him in American Canyon. He was backslidden for many years and he married a non-Christian woman. And he prays nonstop for her, but it hinders his ministry. It hinders his walk with the Lord. And I'm not saying if you're married to an unbeliever to divorce them. You're going to have to win them over by your chaste conduct. But what I am saying is if you're dating, if you're engaged to an unbeliever, Go ahead and give them the Heisman. Get him out of your life. Because not only are you going to do damage to yourself, you're going to place expectations on somebody that can't meet him. He cannot or she cannot lead spiritually or follow. 
You're two different species, a donkey and an ox. It doesn't work. You're going to cause damage. And how selfish. You're going to damage somebody who doesn't even know the Lord because of your own desire. Oh, they come to church sometimes. Do they walk with the Lord, though? Do they have a relationship, or is that your way you hid? Or is that the way you're hiding? Verse 16, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You bring that to the temple of the Lord? Oh, we don't play, we're not, you know, we know, we don't worship idols because that's stupid. We just hide it better than they did in the Old Testament. We don't call them a name. It's a thing now. And then we attach a Bible verse to it. We're not so dumb as to worship an idol carved with stone. We know better than that. But where are your affections? Where is your heart? Because don't you know you're the temple of God? You bring reproach to the name of the Lord? In the Old Testament, we learn a story about Achan. Israel was now moving into the promised land. They had spent years in the desert, and now that generation of people that God had punished, they were dead. And so he was going to bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. From wandering the desert, Jericho was right in the way. They had to contend with Jericho. Jericho was a huge fortified city, and when the natural man would look at it, he would say, how are we going to conquer this, Lord? How can we overcome this? And so God laid out a battle plan. And it sounds, and it is, it's ridiculous. You're going to march around this city, you're going to blow your trumpets, and you're going to yell. And the walls are going to come crashing down. But that is exactly what happened. They marched around Jericho, they blew their trumpets, they shouted, the walls came crashing down. And Israel wiped them out. But God told them, don't touch anything here. Nothing of these people. Leave it here as an offering to me. No gold, no clothing, nothing. Achan sees a Babylonian garment. Nice garment. Some gold and some silver. So he gathers it to himself. But the funny thing about that is, he couldn't wear that garment. Because everybody would know where he got it from. Where was he going to wear that at? What was your plan, Aiken? You going to sell it at the flea market on Sunday? What was your plan? You couldn't wear this. You couldn't spend any of your money. Because everybody around you would know. So you hide. Find a new church. Stop hanging out with your Christian friends. You learn to hide. But the problem is you don't just do damage to your own walk and your partner or your friend or your wife or your husband or your fiancé. You do damage to the church. Israel went out to battle. They won that and they were confident, let's go out to battle again. We conquered Jericho. If we can get Jericho, what can't we do? And they lose. 
They got spanked. Joshua goes before the Lord. What did we do wrong? I thought you said you were going to give us this land as an inheritance and God tells them there's sin in the camp. One of you guys took something that didn't belong to you. You're hiding it. So Joshua goes around and he comes to Achan. Not only did soldiers die, but because of Achan's sin, his family died, literally. They were stoned to death, Achan as well. And though they may do good things for you, and maybe they're nice, and oh man, you don't know the way they make me feel when I'm with them. Are my business partners really smart? Or man, that guy's been my friend since we were in kindergarten. But you're going to do damage to yourself. You're going to do damage to your church. And if you continue in it, you're going to do damage to your own family. That's what sin does. It started off with the Corinthians for their affections misplaced. And then they started adding things or becoming ensnared in the world. They weren't going out to battle. They were adding things to their life. Their affections were misplaced. They did damage to themselves, to their church, to their family. And that's what sin does. That's what it is to be unequally yoked. It may feel good, but then that yoke starts to chafe. And then it dislocates your joints. And now what? Verse 17. Man, I just, I want to make a joke because this looks like it's heavy, but I don't know. <laughs> Verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. You see, if, you, if you're unequally yoked in a friendship, in a business partner, in whatever way, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that you don't read your Bible. I'm not saying that you don't go to church. But I am saying you're going to do damage and you're going to miss out. God is the creator of heaven and earth. A master craftsman, faithful to complete a work he started. A finished carpenter who has prepared a yoke specifically for you. Not one size fits all, but you specifically in mind. That means when you need that male attention so desperately, you seek the Lord. And you wait. And He'll bring you Boaz. And some of you say, well, who's Boaz? Read the book of Ruth. And for you men, I just, want, I just want a wife to love. He'll bring you Ruth. And it will fit you perfectly. 
He'll bring you that friend that you need, that business partner. He'll bring these things to you and it won't just work. It will work perfectly. But we choose to take that out of his hands. Say, oh, no, no, no. I got a Bible verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, if, you, if that's like your for real life Bible verse, it's totally cool. But what he wants, I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, our sovereign God. If you will humble yourselves, if you will wait upon the Lord, He has something specifically for you. Sometimes in our life we get ourselves in a pinch, that yoke, that, that burden that we put on ourselves, it starts to chafe. And there's been a whole lot of, well, don't do this in this message today. And I'm usually mostly, I don't like doing that. Because Christianity isn't about what you do or you don't do. It's about who God is and who he is not. He is not a liar. He does not change. He is faithful. He is a righteous judge. He is a propitiation for our sin. And look how God describes you. In the middle of verse 14, what fellowship has righteousness? What communion has light? Christ in you, verse 15, and you are the temple of God. That's how God sees you. That's what he looks at you. You're the temple of God. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're righteous. So he isn't saying... Obey me, and you'll be these things. He is saying, be who you are. You are the light of the world. You are salt. You are righteous in him. You are a saint. You are holy. Be it. That is who you are. Don't sell yourself short for a thing in this life. It is but a vapor, and it's going to go. This isn't what you need to do. This is who you are now. A new creation. No longer a slave to sin. Given to all your passions, to all your desires. You are light. A new creation. And sometimes we take on that yoke of bondage. Trying to fulfill the law. Trying to earn our way back. It's not what God's called you to do. Skip ahead to chapter 7 in first Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. If something I said bothered you, don't duck it. Let it bite. Don't blame it on me. Blame it on Paul. It's Apostle Paul. 
Email Pastor Bill about it. Oh, dude. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. That yoke around your back, around your neck, sets you free. It fits you perfectly. And when you put on another yoke, when you decide to bind yourself to something else, it starts to chafe and it starts to hurt. And like Aiken, you can try and hide, but you're going to do damage to the people that you love, to yourself, and you bring reproach to the Lord. That is the only fruit of sin. No Bible verse you can quote will justify it or make it better, and God isn't tricked. But that can't be it. Do better. That can't be it. What does Paul say? Godly sorrow. You're right, I have messed up. Produces repentance. 180, right? I was going this way. I stopped. Now I'm headed back this way. I'm on the right path. I'm turning away from that. In Romans, Paul tells us that we're dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead indeed. But don't just feel bad. Godly sorrow produces repentance that'll save you from bringing damage to your life. That will save you, literally speaking of salvation, because His yoke fits you perfectly. What God has for you, He designed for you specifically, with you in mind. Not one size fits all Christianity. He wants to be involved, your Father. He wants to be in every decision of your life. To make you in His image. My daughter plays sports. <laughs> She's eight, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Is she eight? Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> hey, don't judge me, dude. Legalist. <laughs> And I want her to play sports similar to the way I did. So what I tell her, and I, I, like, I need to chill out. I, if you go to a soccer game, you won't hear me yelling. That's my wife. And Caleb Schrader. I'm usually quiet, because if she hasn't figured it out by the time she's on the field, it's too late. No amount of yelling is going to make it work. And usually I think parents yell because it makes you feel better. Like, come on, please, right? So I just stay quiet. But every game I have the same speech with her. And she plays soccer. But this is what I know. Madeline, today you are going to play the fastest, most violent brand of soccer anybody in the world has ever seen. You are going to push your body until it bleeds and then keep going until you break. Don't quit on me. She's like, Dad, I'm eight. My wife's like, What's, what is wrong with you? Yeah? I was born that way. The most violent brand of soccer. That's what I teach an eight-year-old kid. It works, dude. 
And I do make it clear to her, there are some things you do in sports that don't translate to real life. But that's not the end-all, be-all. It's not just to repent. It's not just to turn. It's to be made like Christ, to be made in His image, to be His son, to be His daughter. All the authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He has a Boaz for you. He has a Ruth for you. He has a business partner for you. He has the friendship for you. But if you cheat the Lord, you cheat yourself, and you'll be disqualified. In the ministry that he's called and prepared for you, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. And the very next thing he says, go and make disciples. You are now disqualified from that. Therefore, verse 7, excuse me, chapter 7 and verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Just stop. Find a new business partner. And if you can't, you need to, you need to fulfill your vows. Find a new group of friends. If you're not married, break up with them. Sometimes things are hard. Pick up your cross. You put that yoke on yourself. Don't just sit around and feel bad. Don't blame me. Your affections got you into this. My affections have got me into plenty. But you did this. It's not Pastor Bill's fault. It's not Cornerstone's fault. And it's not the Lord's fault. You've been drawn away by your own desires, James says. Repent. Maybe you've been in sin and maybe you've been struggling. Just stop. Godly sorrow produces repentance. The Bible encourages us to confess our sins to one another, so it takes the act of humility, come forward, confess your sins, and God will deliver you. Accept His yoke. It fits you perfectly. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you're the creator of heaven and earth and we worship you because you are good. We worship you because you've called us, Father. We stand in all of you. And Lord, I pray that whatever wasn't of you would fade away. Give us the grace to apply this to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>